And this is my show. And with the Q on Ones, what I like to do is interview people. Sometimes they can be local entrepreneurs or they could be someone um, who's doing their thing worldwide. Um, So it's an opportunity for you to get to know these people up and close and learn their story and what gave them the passion to do what they do or provide the type of service they provide. So please sit back and enjoy the show and please be encouraged to share. A lot of people, including myself, kind of do their thing by word of mouth, you know, so the more you spread the knowledge about the show, then the more people who can tune in and grow this thing and make it bigger. And it also gives more support for the people who I bring on the show who are looking to get their product or services out to the masses. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. He's a CNN Hero of the Week Award recipient. He's the CEO of Confidential Recovery. With over 30 years of continuous recovery himself, out of San Diego, California, please welcome Mr. Scott Silverman to the Talk to Q radio show. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. So glad to have you on the show, and we'll go ahead and get right to it. Um, now, I mentioned in the intro that you are um, a conti- in continuous recovery yourself. Can you tell us what happened to you over 30 years ago and how you overcame it? Well, you know, I just I was one of those guys. I grew up in San Diego, so I'm a native here, and I just, you know, had a traditional family, one of four kids. Everything was going along pretty good, and when I got in trouble as a kid in second grade, and then again in fifth grade, I won't go into detail. If anybody wants to call me down the road, we'll talk about it. And as I got into my teens, I just, uh, you know, like most kids do, I started experimenting with alcohol, and I quickly got connected to it and found that uh, when I drank, um, good things seemed to happen and bad things went away, or bad things seemed to happen and good things came as well. So, you know, without getting in too much of what's called the drunkalog, uh, progressed, continued working. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, I was busy and my hands were full and. My life was full, and I just kind of continued to experiment and got into some mood-altering substances, you know, marijuana and cocaine and methamphetamine and hallucinogens, to name a few. And as I moved into my 20s, continued with my career and uh, did what everybody else was doing. The difference was I I couldn't find myself uh, easily stopping, and I just continued Mm -hmm. on that road, and things continued to get uh, more progressive. And as I did more mood-altering self-medication, um, I needed more to get to where I was the day before. And as I got into my late 20s, um, I was starting to make a lot of mistakes, and I was doing some blackout drinking. And, you know, I was not never I was never really arrested for anything, but I got in some real trouble, and I got lucky. And then when I hit my 30s, that was my worst year, and I got in trouble when I was on a business trip. And was picked up by the police, but I was taken back to my hotel because I happened to carry a badge back in those days. And, you know, the next morning, Mm -hmm. I was so embarrassed about what had happened that week. um, I had made a decision that I I couldn't, you know, I was in charge of the group that was there, 14 of my colleagues. And I was embarrassed. I'd been in a blackout all week. And I found out later as people shared with me what happened to fill in the blanks. And I decided it might be time for me to just stop being who I was and I was at somebody's office in the 44th floor of a building in New York and I was prepared to take my own life. I was sitting on the windowsill 
it was a hot morning. I'd been sweating from all the drinking I'd been doing all night. And I was getting ready to put my leg up on the windowsill and jump out the window. And the office of a guy I was in comes in and says, get away from there. You're going to fall out the window. So I'm just getting some air. I'll be, I'll be right back to the meeting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I call, that was the divine intervention. I was prepared to end my life. And I heard in my head something my mom used to tell me that uh, suicide was selfish. And I, between that and the guy coming to his office, I spun around, sat back down in the chair, started to cry, called my wife in San Diego and said, I'm ready. I need some help. So I flew home that night. Next morning, I was checked into rehab. And that was, gosh, 1984, November. And my sobriety date is the 13th because I actually was on some prescription medication for a couple of days to handle the detox. So that was my sobriety date. And I, uh, you know, everything changed from that day forward. I spent the traditional 28 days inpatient program, got involved with outpatient, left my career I'd been in most of my adult life and was starting all over again. And, you know, fast forwarding, I started a nonprofit back in 93, ran that for 18 years. And um, I really was in the business now of helping people. And today what I do is I run an outpatient program called Confidential Recovery here in San Diego and work with uh, first responders and working professionals, doctors, lawyers to help them get to the best level of care. And I'm also a crisis coach. Yourcrisiscoach.com is my website. And, and I help families identify the highest and best level of care for their loved ones. So that's what I do. I inter- help with interventions and I coach people and I do everything I can each day to try to be a service and try to, you know, I call it this, my new campaign for 2020 was, uh, I call it a funeral avoidance, Quincy. I don't want to go to funerals anymore. I, I've been to so many of right. them, you know, I, I'm tired right. of it. And one other, one of the people say, well, mm-hmm. you know, are you a therapist? No, I'm not a therapist. But one of the things I have in my background <clears throat> that's kind of unusual is I'm a retired, uh, unlicensed pharmacist. So some, I'm sure some people in your audience will pick up on that, what that means. So I, I right. do a lot of volunteer work. <laughs> I sit on some boards. Yeah, exactly. And uh, when I sit at meetings, I, I bring a different kind of anecdotal experiential expertise about the recovery world and treatment world and what works and what doesn't work. And I just try to be a resource to families and to their loved ones to help them move forward and uh, get help knowing that there is help and there is hope. And that's what I do every day. So I really appreciate the opportunity to share with you and, and your listeners. And I encourage people to call me. I'm going to pop my number up real quick. If you don't mind, 619-993-993. 619-993-2738. And I dare people to call me and I put my phone number out there because I know I may not live in your city, you may not live in mine, but at the end of the day, I can help you answer some questions and if nothing else, be a sounding board and if nothing else, be a friend while we're all kind of hunkered down right now and we're you know sheltering in place with this horrible pandemic we have going on with the virus. So please call me, text right. me, let's figure out a way to figure out a way. So back to you. Okay, and I and I think that your story is great, and the fact that you were able to realize that you needed help, and that's kind of where everything starts. And there are a lot of people across this country who have experienced things, you know, similar to what you've gone through. So, what gave you the inspiration to help others overcome their addictions after you got out of rehab and everything was going well for you? You know, I think you know, there, there was a message that I heard that, I, that really inspired me. The first message I actually heard was shut up and listen, which was kind of difficult as a type A personality and a guy who, you know, ran things, you know, and I was part of a big family business and I had a lot of responsibility and 
my first meeting mm-hmm. I went to when I was in rehab with some of the, one of the old guys says, uh, anybody have anything to share? And I, I mumbled because I was on medication. Then I asked another question. I said, well, how does this program work? And he just says, why don't you take that cotton out of your mouth and, you know, and, and, and out of your ears and stick it in your mouth and just listen. So that's what I did. I shut up and I listened. And one of the messages oh, I wow. heard was, you cannot, you cannot keep it unless you give it away. So I ended up volunteering at the treatment center I went to for nearly four years, and then they hired me because I wouldn't go away. And I learned uh, that I had a skill, and, and I had a blessing, and I had an organic way of with working with people that I could get through to them because I wasn't judgmental, and I wasn't dictatorial, and I, I also knew that once you've been there and you've done that, sometimes you can share that with somebody else who doesn't believe, you know, the, the professional clinical experts they're talking to, Kind of like, you know, right. if you haven't walked a mile in my shoes, how would you possibly know what I've been through? Well, I've been through it. So I became a resource for people and enjoyed doing it. And I just continued my own personal recovery and continued to go on and on and, and uh, was maintaining it. And it, not that you get good at it, but I, I didn't have to relapse. Or, you know, I didn't suffer from that. So with my continuous sobriety, I just wanted to find a way. And I started a nonprofit actually working with people coming out of jail and prison that was my first path, and I had sober living homes, 175 beds that I oversaw, and really was helping people who, you know, the community's throwaways get access to workforce and housing, and if they needed treatment, I referred them out. And then about six years ago, um, you know, I left the organization 10 years ago, and about six years ago, I, I just, I don't know, something hit me one day, and just decided to get into the treatment business, and I did a lot of research. And found out, you know, one of the most sensitive populations in our community were first responders. You know, the people who practice public safety and their job is to take care of everybody mm-hmm. else had one of the highest uh, addiction rates of any other, you know, working group other than lawyers, which is higher. So I opened up an outpatient program wow. with a colleague. And uh, that's so I used to I used to put, you know, work with returning offenders and work with the justice and local law enforcement. Then when I opened the treatment center. I was now helping the same cops who used to arrest my old clients. So it was kind of an interesting paradigm shift. And I just <laughs> found it to be, um, it was important to me because I've you know, been in the rooms for a long time in recovery. And I just watched so many people continue to go out and relapse. And I just wanted to figure out a way if there's a better way to help treat people. And I, and I think I've done that. And what I've learned is that, you know, in the industry, the treatment industry, which is a $40 billion industry, if the average person goes through a 28-day program and that's all they do, Quincy, that's all they do, that's all they do is 28 days, you know, they get that, that really that glow on the honeymoon feeling and they do mm-hmm. nothing else, they have a 90, 95% chance of relapsing, a 95% chance of relapsing. Good so I figured I, I, I couldn't get in the business and make it worse, and if I could improve it by half of 1%, I would really be happy with it. And, you know, and I think I've found something that works and, and I'm anxious to share it with anybody who wants to hear about it, but it's a, it's a formula. It's, it's anecdotal. It's experiential. And I've studied a lot of the science and the evidence. And because I've been through it myself, I feel like I can speak to the average person in a way that hopefully engages them. And I also realize that one size doesn't fit all. And I mean, meaning if you were to do it the way I did it, it may not work for you. So what we try to do is design recovery programs for people to meet them where they are and help them better understand that whatever they were doing before, if it was working for them, don't change a thing. But if it wasn't working for them and they're hungry 
to spend more time on this planet. Let's talk about options and opportunities, and that's my philosophy. I think that's great. I really do. And, you know, with people being quarantined across the the country now because of the COVID-19 virus, you know, there are a lot of people who are by themselves. How can that affect those who may be suffering from, you know, depression or or substance abusers, this quarantine? Well, my experience has been that, especially for people who suffer from addiction, right now, according to science, 15% of our country um, suffers. It's actually more of a global percentage, but I'd like to speak to the USA just because I kind of know it better. And the data that I see comes from, you know, the science and the outcomes. 15% of our population suffers from some form of addiction that will erupt over the next 12 months. And that's anywhere from, you know, gambling to sex to internet to alcohol to prescription medication, you know, um, any kind of, of substance abuse or any mood-altering substances, that 15% suffers from it or will, and it'll erupt in the next 12 months, and only 10% of those will seek help. And one of the things that everybody who understands this disease of addiction knows is isolation is your enemy. Being alone is your enemy. There's a, there's a saying in the program, you know, your best thinking got you here. And I like the example I like is my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone. So what I tell people is, <laughs> I like look, it, and, and, yeah, I like it too. It's, I tell people, look, you're, you're going to be home and we're all going to be home right now. They say 80% of the country right now is hunkered down. What I encourage people to do is get on the phone, call somebody, you know, call a family member, call a friend, call a significant other, call someone that you haven't spoken to in a long time. You know, it's funny. I did a uh, FaceTime live today, and it's amazing. I, it's the first time I've ever done one, and I must I had 40 people on, and probably 12 of them were high school friends. It's amazing. And, you know, and they were, they were so grateful mm-hmm. that somebody was talking about this, and these are obviously the friends that are still alive that, you know, were party buddies of mine. So I encourage yeah. people to know that. And you can't, you can't go out now, and almost every major um, – recovery program, 12-step program, anonymous programs have had to close their doors right now because they're the, obviously the idea of people not using social distancing is an issue. And a lot of the meetings are held in faith-based arenas and they've closed their doors because they don't want to be a melting pot for, you know, or an incubation for the, you know, the contagion moving from one person to the other. So a lot of us are sitting on, uh, you know, at home, but what's happened in the last month or two, there's one company I wish I had invested in, and that's the company that's created Zoom. So there are Zoom meetings everywhere. Yeah. So if you go and you Google, you know, recovery Zoom meeting or, you know, 12-step Zoom meeting or anonymous, you know, recovery meetings or I have a problem with alcohol, where can I find a meeting? You'll find them all over the web right now. I mean, I was on three of them today, and um, there, there's probably another six that I've identified. And the more you're on them, the more people tell you about the others. So if you're in recovery, and you're in the home, and you're not sure where to go for a meeting, get online. It's easy to do, and you can, you know, black out your, you know, your picture so no one sees you, and you can put your first name up on your screen. So just set it up if you're concerned about your own anonymity. But in the meantime, you don't have to be alone. You don't have to sit at home. So you call somebody, you go to a meeting, you get involved, you know, you use your phone, you've got your text, you've got your computer. There's a variety of different ways out there. Or you call me. You know, I'm going to give the number again, 619-993-2738. Don't be afraid to call somebody. And if you don't know who to call, 
call me and I'll give you some directions, suggestions, and if nothing else, we'll talk. And when I'm talking to another person who's suffering, you know, it helps me in my own recovery. So part of the gift that I have, I want to give to others. And sometimes it's just being there to listen. Definitely, I can see. And um, I think that is definitely an option people should take advantage of. Um, Now, we've seen interventions as part of reality TV. I know there was a TV show called Intervention. And I don't know how authentic the setting was for that show or not. But can you tell us what it's like to do an intervention? I can. You know, and I don't do what's called a traditional intervention. What I try to do with an intervention, because, you know, the traditional intervention is, you know, an interventionist specialist, and I'm I'm grandfathered in because of my experience with it. You know, some are licensed, some are, you know, are clinically approved, some are certified coaches. But interventions, historically, the way it would be is a family member would call an expert, an expert would meet with the family. It still goes on. And then they would physically have a meeting with the person that they're concerned about. And that person would come to a meeting and everyone in the room would have written something down about how special that person is and how they care about them. And then that individual would either decide to take the suggestions in the room or they'd run out of the room. And, you know, there's a thing I call it, I call it shut up treatment, where some people actually will shut people up by simply going to treatment. And what I've found about my way of doing interventions is I like to educate the family first, like a lot of interventionists do, and then I prepare them for what's about to take place. And then with that, the the addict or the alcoholic or the person who's, you know, got the behavioral issue who may be anesthetizing themselves, I like to call it, or self-medicating, because this is a disease to me, and it's a disease of denial and the inability to feel feelings, when families usually confront the loved one and say, you know, we think you're drinking too much, the the person they're talking to immediately says, no, I'm not. And if you're not careful right, about right. the timing of it, they'll hide their behavior even better, or they'll start to isolate more, or they'll avoid family members. And, you know, there's a lot of dysfunction in families when you're growing up, especially in an alcoholic family or a family where, you know, people are using and abusing, and it contributes to all kinds of other things, you know, harm and, you know, PTSD and self-destructing ways and uh, split relationships and PTSD. So what I really suggest is the family try to listen. And sometimes the, the message that I give to the family is to just stop talking, meaning if what you're doing is not working, stop doing it. And that's where someone who's got expertise and as a clinical expert or understands interventions, you really want to bring that third party in. And people go, well, we, we love our, our brother. We know we can help him. And I, my answer is, look, if you broke your leg, would you try to fix it yourself? You know, if, you're, if your wheel fell off your car and you don't know anything about auto mechanics, wouldn't you call in an expert? And when I think about and talk about the disease of addiction, people always, there's a mixed review about something. Well, if you don't pick up a drink, you don't have a drinking problem. Okay, I get that. But I could not not pick up the drink. And if I was with you socially and you told me not to pick up the drink, A, I wouldn't spend time with you again. Or if we were really good friends, I would drink before I went to that event and then drink a little bit while I was with you if I could find a way to drink a little bit. But I never could. I, I had that compulsive, obsessive, addictive behavior, and my brain was just wired a certain way. I had the disease. So when people ask me about the disease, I say, look, if we were talking about diabetes, Quincy, if you and I were talking about diabetes, mm-hmm. nobody wakes up one day and says, hey, can somebody please give me a really bad case of diabetes? It's just in you. It's genetic, or you were born right. with it, or it comes over time, or maybe in your family, mm-hmm. but you don't choose to have it. Just like the disease of addiction, 
I've never met an addict or an alcoholic or a gambler or somebody who has an issue with food, eating too much or not eating enough or other issues around addiction, the maladaptive behavior. They don't choose that. So if somebody has it and we can help reduce the stigma when we talk to them about it or you bring in an expert who can help set the table in a more effective way, we can convince that individual that maybe what they're doing, which they all clearly describe, isn't working. You know, I, when I hear it, when I have people call me and go, I don't really have a bad problem. I only had three DUIs, and I only gambled away and lost a half a million dollars last year. Oh, but my I did get divorced twice. I did get divorced twice in the last three years, but I think I have it under control. So what I do, I call it reflective thinking. I said, okay, we'll say Joe. Joe, let me just repeat to you what I just heard. Two, D, two, three DUIs, a couple of divorces, and you lost a half a million dollars in gambling last year. Do you think that is normal? <laughs> so, you know, I asked the question because clearly it's not. And I said, and are you happy? Of course I'm not happy. You know, I've got all this alimony. I lost all this money. You know, my partners, I have a you know morals clause in my business partnership. They could fire me at any time. I said, so are you willing to take a look at some options and opportunities? And that's how I like to tee it up. And most people who mm-hmm. have, you know, any kind of intelligence left, or I like to say if they can fog a mirror and they're still alive and you talk to them like that, most people go, you know, I, I hear what you're saying and that makes sense. Let's talk some more. So I'm not judgmental, you know, because I've been there and I've done that. And, and I try never to tell somebody what I think they should do. I try to help them with suggestions. And then we talk a little bit about, again, I call them options and opportunities. But, you know, I have an interesting competitor out there, the drug dealer today who's selling fentanyl, methamphetamine, heroin, mm. and all the illicit drugs that are out there benzos and with the you know the dark web and all the information that's going there for people buying things that's how i look at my you know i'm a social entrepreneur so i look at the drug dealer and the slings and distributors they're my competition play by the rules so i know that so when i not at all you know we try to talk about the fact that you know that that person who sells you that stuff is not your friend oh they like me i said yeah stop buying from and watch what happens they're going to move on in a heartbeat (laughs) So true. That's very true. All right. So um, how does someone get help for their loved ones? I'm sure that more times than not, the person who calls uh, Confidential Recovery or reaches out to your website is not the abuser themselves. So do you find yourself speaking to a lot of family members and significant others and things of that nature for the actual person who needs the help? Great, great question, and not many people get that, but 90% of the people who reach out are not the people who have the issue. There's someone who's close to them, their loved ones, and in the business environment, I've actually had executive assistants call me, and I'm doing some research for my boss. Can you tell me what services you offer? And they never necessarily identify themselves, but, you know, this is, again, part Mm -hmm. of that denial or that, you know, the anonymity people want to maintain or the stigma behind the fact that, you know, if somebody knows that I have a problem and I tell them, isn't that going to default just cause all kinds of issues in my world? But, you know, here we are in 2020. It's a, it's a lot easier to accept somebody for that. And in most cases, and especially in companies today, you come forward to, you know, your supervisor or the boss or EAP or HR and say, look, I got an issue. If you had diabetes and needed time off, 
you get it. You broke a leg. You know, have a, you have a medical issue, and this is treated the same way now in business. So I think now is a time where people can really know that nine out of ten times there's going to be a resource for you there. But generally, you're absolutely right. It's a family member who calls, and what I try to let them know is, you know, we're going to need to talk to your loved one, but let's by educating them, because in many cases this is considered a family disease. And the person who's watched a loved one for 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 years be under the influence every day and wreck almost everything emotionally in their own life and then it wreck everything in their relationship and burn bridges and lose businesses and lose friends and, you know, get in trouble, crash cars, so on and so forth. In many ways, they're suffering from the disease of the disease addiction on the other side of the family as the codependent who's actually, in many cases, enabling the addict or alcoholic to continue their behavior because in some ways they're co-signing it by not necessarily putting up with it but not knowing how to deal with it. So Mm -hmm. the alcoholic who lives with somebody who accepts the behavior or just puts a blind eye to it, in many ways they're co-signing that behavior and they need help or sometimes more help. And that's where someone like myself and clinical experts can help intervene on that behavior to give you the tools that you need to be a lot more effective. All right. Well, a couple more questions, and um, I appreciate you taking the time, Scott. For those who may be going to rehab, that can be a little scary, uh, maybe because of the, the unknown. But once a person decides that they want to participate in an inpatient uh, rehab, I'm assuming that they have to have like blood work or drug testing or something like that during the program. Can you kind of set expectations what people may have to go through in an inpatient rehab? Well, yeah, and let, and let me give you a couple of quick uh, responses to that. One response is there's a different different levels of care. For example, detox is a place where you may go where you're medically supervised for seven to ten days just to kind of get you okay. stabilized while you come your mood-altering substances, and some people can do that independent of other treatment, then normally what happens is if somebody's got the capacity, the insurance, the wherewithal, the time to get away from work or the need to do it, they can go into an inpatient program. And then from an inpatient program, they generally go to an intensive, what's called intensive outpatient program, then down to an outpatient program. And sometimes some people who are, you know, still have some functionality and maybe live in a home that's a safe place to be, um, they can go right into an outpatient program. And that's what we do at Confidential Recovery. We're just an outpatient program, but we get referrals from detoxes and residential programs. And while you, when you first go in, whether you're going to a detox or you're going to a residential or an outpatient program, they have an intake and assessment process. And through that evaluation, it's usually determined what the highest and best level of care are. There's a lot of people in this industry, obviously with a 95% failure rate, you know, we could certainly do a better job. There's a lot of people in this industry that will take somebody if they have insurance and just put them in their program and keep them as long as they can until their benefits run out. And I just really frown on that personally. I just think it's, a, it's not ethical and it's not fair. And then to just send them on their way without a continuum of care to me is just giving somebody a loaded gun when they leave, or you give them a gun and you tell them where to buy the ammo if they need it. So to me, that's not the way we should really treat people. It's just, it's just like diabetes. Right. Once you get diagnosed, you know, you're going to be checking your blood sugar level and taking insulin probably for the rest of your life. Same thing in this recovery. You're going to be doing something a little bit each day, hopefully for the rest of your life. But if that means you have the rest of your life, it's not, it's a very small investment you make. So they do do testing while you're in treatment 
They monitor your 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 um, UA. They call them through your analysis normally. Sometimes they can do it through blood work. And the idea is to monitor uh, how an individual, you know, this, it's punitive in some cases. I like the consequence versus an incentive. So if your, you know, levels are changing and diminishing, the THC is going away and the methamphetamine is leaving your body, that's the physical side of it. But then once you've detoxed and you've stabilized, now you've got the real stuff to work on. This is where the real work comes in. Why were you drinking? You know, what was causing you to self-medicate on a daily basis? And then you get into some of that, the deeper work of the behavior, you know, what's going on with your behavior, what took place. And in some cases, there's some terrific trauma that needs to be dealt with. Untreated trauma, we like to call it in the industry, where something may have happened to you as a young child. You may have had a catastrophic event as an adult. You may have lost a family member, a loved one, or something horrific may have happened to you. And you started, you know, picking up and drinking and self-medicating around that. So once you get rid of the mood-altering substances, I call it the anesthesia, then the real work starts, you know, and, and doing a deeper dive with clinical experts and psychiatrists or psychologists. And some people may need to be taking medication while they go through this. So those are all the different, you know, basic modalities of treatment. And then there's all kinds of different nuances mm-hmm. that, that are available based on an individual and what's going on. For example, I'm ADHD. You know, they didn't really have Adderall around when I was a kid, but, you know, I have an eight second, still have an eight second tension span. You know, I get on these Zoom meetings. It's funny, there's 40 people on the screen and being ADHD, I can track everything. It's amazing. So it's a real skill now in this marketplace. Wow. But there, there, most people have underlying issues. And plus, from a health perspective, if you've been drinking and drugging for long periods of time, you may have other physiological issues going on that need to be treated as well, but a lot of them get numbed if you were a pickle because you're under the influence, once again, of mood-altering substances. So I recommend, you know, and there's also sober living. There's a place where you can go live, where you go to an outpatient program, and, if, again, if it's not safe at home. So there's all kinds of different varieties out there, and there's all kinds of different treatment options in the communities that most people live in. And, you know, and if there's a way, if people want to call me, but there's also a lot of information online. But I caution people because the big business people who provide, you know, call centers and tactical sales techniques are, they want to get people, you know, you know put you on a plane, they'll fly across country because they're looking to make money. And what they do, what I like to do is help somebody with their recovery. And, you know, and I obviously need to pay my team. But that's what we're in the business for. Mm-hmm. We're in the business for saving lives. Some people are in the business to just make money in the treatment world. So me and others out there, and there's a lot of them out there. And if you don't know where to start, you know, you can talk to your primary doctor. You can talk to your faith-based leader. You can talk to a friend. You know, you can call. There's crisis hotlines all over the country right now. And you can just reach out if you're not sure and ask questions. So I'm one of those resources. But in the meantime, there's lots of them out there. And I really encourage people. Look. When you go out to buy a car, okay, mm-hmm. and you're going to spend X amount of money to buy a vehicle, most people do a lot of homework. You know, what are the lease options? What's the purchase price? How much down payment do I need? How much can I afford monthly? What kind of car do I want? What kind of right. accessories do I want in the car, you know? And what am I willing to spend for a certain vehicle that's going to drive me around? And, you know, the same thing if you get your my, – my kids do it, getting their eyebrows and their nails done until they find the right salon. They're not going to keep coming back. You go to their favorite restaurant. You know, you do some research. You don't like the meal. You don't go back. So I really encourage people to, to bring down that stigma shade, do some research, do some homework, ask some questions, and call different places and ask them the same questions and take some notes. 
And if you're not clean and sober while you're doing it, have someone who cares about you do it with you. That's where a family member can really be helpful. But ultimately, the person they're calling for has to be the one who walks in that front door and sits down with the intake coordinator or the assessment person or the clinician and answer the questions, meaning I can't send my wife to treatment for me. That's not going to work. And I've seen family members who said, I'll go for them. That doesn't work. You can't take the insulin if you don't have diabetes. The person who has diabetes exactly. has to take the insulin. It's just like working out. If I said, hey, Quincy, I'm going to pay you 25 bucks an hour, go out there and practice being a triathlete because I don't want to. Well, that's not going to work. You're going to get in good shape, and you're going to make money doing it. But that's not how the system works. Right. We have to do it for ourselves. And that's where you know the education and the options come up because there is hope and help, and there are a lot of people out there that want to help. All right, so I'll, I'll get you out of here on this. Um, you've ri- you've also written a book. Uh, the name of the book is "Tell Me Tell Me No, I Dare You: A Guide to Living a Heroic Life." What is your book about, and what, what would you like your readers to get from it? Well, the the book, you know, "Tell Me No, I Dare You," is is uh, an, a title. It was not originally the, the title was "Success Is in You." And after five years of thinking about it, working on it, I ended up changing the title when I went to self-publish. And the idea of Tell Me No, I Dare You is just that, is Tell Me No, I Dare You. And what it is, it's a book about how to get from no to yes. When, when seven out of ten of the okay. studies have shown, because I got some of the data, if I said to you, no, don't do that, and there was ten people in the room, seven of the people would not do it. And the other three may or may not listen but they're not, and, and they may just realize that, you know, I, I'm not going to let you tell me no. So the idea behind the book is to help people get to yes. Yes, I, I, you know, I am capable of doing something. Yes, just because they told me I couldn't go to that college, I'm going to go to that college. Or you're not smart enough or tall enough or fit enough or fast enough. So the idea of the book is to really give people hope and help and let them realize, hey, guess what? Just because things may not be working out today doesn't mean you can't make plans forget to yes tomorrow. So that's the idea of the book is to find ways to encourage people. It's a couple of my stories, some stories of people I've worked with and people I've served and people who have become friends of mine, a little bit about recovery. And, you know, they can get that on my website, by the way, yourcrisiscoach.com. Come to me. Don't go to Amazon. It's on Amazon, but get it from me. I'll ship it to you directly if, you, if you're interested. Tell me no, I dare you. And you know, it was a piece of work, and it was a great journey. It was a great cleansing opportunity for me, and I'm now working on my second book, and I'm real excited about that. I hope to have that out before the uh, end of this year, but you never know with the way things are going. And that was the idea is to uh, create a toolbox for people to pick up and utilize in their life any way they can. All right. I think that's great. I mean, crisis counselor, CEO, author, motivational speaker. You wear a lot of hats, Scott. <laughs> well, uh, I definitely want to thank you for joining the South of Key Radio Show today. Uh, thank it's you. It's been a pleasure to speak to you about, about one of society's problems that in some shape, form, or fashion has impacted so many people worldwide. I mean, we all probably know someone or know of someone who's dealing with something. And so I think that is great that they have opportunities out there and you're a, you're a living witness to it. And um, so if you can give your conf- contact information one more time, your, your number, your website, how people can reach you. 
Okay, well, I'm going to give you a simple way. My name is Scott, middle initial H, Scott H. Silverman. If you Google me, anything and everything I do pops up. Um, and my phone number, which is the important one, 619-993-2738, and I'll give you my website. It's yourcrisiscoach.com. And if you're here in the Southern California, San Diego area, confidentialrecovery.com as well. But Google my name and find a way to reach out to me, whether it's an email, look for me on Facebook or LinkedIn. And I'm actually working on Instagram and Twitter. So I really want to encourage people. I really want to dare people to call me. I mean, people, ah, oh, I don't want to call. Make the call. I mean, I go to bed at a certain time every night like most people, and I'll, I, won't, I won't put my phone next to my bed, but in the morning when I get up, there's nothing more exciting for me to get a voicemail from somebody, you know, in Kentucky or Dakotas or Florida or Chicago or Boston. You know, I heard you on the show, and I have a family member. Call me. Don't be shy. And this particular month of April, I'm giving away 10 minutes of free coaching to anybody who calls me. And when you look at my hourly rate, you know you're getting a good deal because I'm not cheap, <laughs> but I'm also very experienced. And, and my second favorite F word is free. So free 10 minutes for anybody who calls and I'll <laughs> I'll do whatever I can to leverage, you know, my experience, strength, and hope to help you yourself. All right. Well, there it is, people. All right. Well, Scott, again, I thank you for joining the show. I hope that you all stay safe out there. I know in California that, um, you know, things have gotten a lot more serious over the last week. I hope you and your family are able to uh, kind of – Wait it out and, and get through all of this like the rest of the country. All right, buddy. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Best to you and yours. And that's going to do it for this T2Q podcast. Go to TalkToQ.com, and that way you can sign up for the email newsletter and be alerted to new shows as they come out. I'm on Twitter at TalkToQ, and that's Talk, the number two Q. So I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast of T2Q, and I'll see you next time.